Today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 15, verses uh, starting at verse 22. All right, this is God's word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. This is God's word. Let me pray briefly. God, we thank you just for this time, and simply our prayer is this, that you would speak. You would speak clearly and powerfully to us and to our hearts. Give us the encouragement we need, and help us to see uh, the beauty of Christ all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this fall season, we've been thinking about the church. And when we looked at First Peter, there was like a phrase in there that we looked at uh, not last week, but two weeks ago, uh, where Peter refers to us as sojourners and exiles. And what I thought we could do is kind of expand on that. And so for the next few weeks, what I want to do is I want to stay on that theme of sojourner specifically and reflect on what does it actually mean that we are sojourners because I do think it highlights the fact that the life experience of the believer and the, the life of the church is not necessarily an easy one but it's one in which we have to live by faith even in the midst of difficulties and struggle. And the way I thought we could do this is by looking at a parallel experience in the Old Testament, which is the experience of the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness, living in a liminal state, which basically means kind of an in-between state, between the experience of being delivered by God, saved by God, rescued from the bondage of slavery, to the consummation or the completion of uh, receiving what God had promised to them signified in the promised land. Uh, If you don't know the story of the Israelites during this period, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's a pretty long time without feeling a sense of home. And in that wilderness season, what they had to do was they had to endure a lot of struggle, they had to overcome a lot of fear, and they had to overcome a lot of temptation. And not everything that happened in the wilderness turned out well for them, especially when the people sinned against God. But at the same time, what we also see in this wilderness experience is this is a place where God also revealed himself to them in very powerful ways. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is the beginning of that journey that would take 40 years. And uh, it's the start of this uh, wilderness experience. And what I want to point out is a part of the passage that I didn't read. So if we were to read exactly one verse prior to the passage that we read, let me read to you what it says. It says this, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into into the sea. And it's the conclusion of Moses' song, which all of Israel, they would sing because they're singing about their triumph. They're singing about God's triumph as God brought them out of Egypt. And it's the conclusion of, that of a sort of kind of like a difficult experience that you would think is like the end of the story. Uh, But in Exodus, it's not the end of the story. It's just kind of like part one of the story. Deliverance and salvation is just part one. But now in uh, Exodus 15, what we start to look at is now this 
second part of the story where Israel now is wandering in this in-between state as they go through the wilderness looking towards the promised land that God has promised to them. Likewise, for us, when we experience the grace of God, when we experience salvation through repentance, when we experience the victory of Jesus on the cross, that isn't the end of our story as well, right? That's not the end of the story of the church. That's just part one. But there is an entire life to be lived in this in-between state of uh, salvation and what we await as the conclusion, which is the final resurrection that's going to come to us in Christ. And we also live in like this in-between state in this world where we are called to live by faith, where we are called to live in obedience in the context of the struggle of the wilderness. And so, when Peter calls us sojourners, it's kind of like the Israelites here. They're wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness is a spiritually dangerous place. The wilderness is a place where people can potentially fall away from God and lose faith. And that's why if you ever read the book of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews is trying to exhort the people, don't fall away, don't fall away. And what the author of Hebrews does is he oftentimes points back to the wilderness experience of the Israelites. Because when your heart longs for the stability of being at home, of arriving, the wilderness can be a place that's very discouraging and disorienting. And if you're impatient and you don't want to wait for God to speak, you don't want to wait for God to reveal himself, or you don't want to wait for God to move in his time, then the wilderness can be a place of frustration towards God And that's when unbelief and doubt can slowly creep into our hearts. But the wilderness is also a place where God revealed himself powerfully to the Israelites. The wilderness is a place where God showed himself to be one who provides. The wilderness is the place where God spoke and gave the Israelites the law. The Ten Commandments happens on Mount Sinai in the wilderness journey. The wilderness is also the place where God would test Israel. And so even though the wilderness can feel discouraging, it can feel like a desolate place, it can feel like a place of struggle, it can feel like you're stuck, God is still there, showing grace to his people. But you see, the variable is not whether God is there, the variable is actually us, whether we will be a people who can live by faith through worship and through obedience. And so in some ways, I think this passage, it does foreshadow the storyline of Israel a bit, Because what you have here in this passage, in Act 1, they grumble. In Act 2, Moses intercedes on their behalf and God provides. And then in Act 3, they come to a place of Elim, a place with 12 springs of water foreshadowing, I think, their entrance into the promised land. So we'll follow that plot line as well. In the beginning of our passage, we're told this, that at the start of Israel's wilderness journey, uh, they went three days and found no water. They came to a place called Mara, and they found water, but they couldn't drink this water because it was so bitter. And as a result, the people, they grumble against Moses. This is actually the first of three grumbling stories which happen in succession in the book of Exodus, because in the next chapter, they grumble because you know they're hungry. They have no food. That's when God makes it um, manna come down from heaven. And then the passage after that, they have no water again, so they grumble again, and they want to stone Moses, uh, and God produces water out of a rock. What is so dangerous about grumbling? After all, uh, we do it all the time, right? We complain and grumble all the time. 
You look at the New Testament, though, it clearly prohibits grumbling. James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And you have to ask yourself, well, what is so bad about grumbling? Grumbling is dangerous because of what it can do to our hearts. You know, grumbling is so easy. We don't have to try to grumble. It's kind of like our default reaction to when things don't go our way. But here's what grumbling actually does if we don't let it, uh, if we let it get out of hand. Grumbling takes away gratitude. Grumbling takes away our sense of thankfulness. Without gratitude, we become entitled, we become miserable, and we become joyless. Grumbling about uh, your job actually makes you forget about the blessing of having a job. Grumbling about your schoolwork for your students makes you forget the joy and the privilege of being able to learn. Grumbling about the traffic makes you forget the blessing of maybe either having somewhere to go or even having a car or a vehicle. Grumbling about maybe your spouse or your kids or your parents makes you forget the blessing of having them in your lives, right? So do you know what happens when you forget blessing? You actually become quite miserable. You measure the standard of your life not by what it could have been or ought to have been, but now you measure the standard of your life by simply what your heart desires. And that's a dangerous way to live, friends, because we can't always get what we want. The great Rolling Stones song that I taught at least Abby, and Karis, Karis hasn't heard that song, but at least Abby, you can't always get what you want, right? Uh, that, that's a dangerous way to live if you think you can always get what you want. And so now, you look at your life, you measure your life, not by what you have been given, not by the blessing that you have, but now you measure your life by your lack, and that can only result in misery, right? Not only that, I think temptations have greater power when you forget blessing. I have said this many times, but why would Adam and Eve, why would they eat the only from the only tree, the only fruit that God said, do not eat from this tree, right? Why would, God, why would they fixate on this one tree? Didn't God give them the entirety of the garden and say, all of this belongs to you, all of this is yours, but they had to fixate on the one tree that they couldn't eat from? Well, they fixated on this one tree, and they felt like they lacked. They didn't realize the abundance that they were living in, the good gifts that God has given to them, and therefore when the serpent came around and tempted them to eat from this tree, guess what? They fell into temptation, and they ate it. So grumbling is not, um, I don't know, it's not an innocent sin. It's actually a potentially very destructive and dangerous sin. And here, the God of the universe has just miraculously rescued an entire people out of slavery from the Egyptians. No more making bricks out of straw. No more back-breaking labor. No more getting whipped and beaten for falling behind. No more loss of dignity. Now they have freedom. God just sent these plagues to force Pharaoh's hand. God just parted the seas so that they can escape. They just sang a song about God's triumph and God's victory. After three days in the wilderness, they start to grumble. Right? Three days. It's a little comical because if you know the whole story, you're like, oh boy, this is just the beginning, right? You've got 40 years left. But after three days, they start to grumble. So what does Moses do? Well, Act 2, he intercedes for the people. It says in verse 25, he cried to the Lord. And time and time again, we see Moses playing this role of intercessor. An intercessor is someone who intervenes on the behalf of another. Moses would intervene on behalf of the people several times. 
and he would ask God to spare his people several times. And I think it's actually pretty remarkable that Moses would do that because uh, I bet like a a lesser leader or a more insecure leader or a leader with a a bigger ego would probably hear the the grumbling of the people and then kind of get sucked into grumbling themselves about the people. Wow, why are these people grumbling against me? And all of a sudden, Moses would become a grumbler as well, right? But that's not what happens. In fact, actually, for the Israelites' uh, side, the grumbling actually gets more and more intense progressively until the point where they actually want to kill Moses. They're like, why did, you, why did you bring us to this desolate place, right? They want to stone Moses by the time we get to Exodus 17. But Moses here, he demonstrates a great deal of humility and self-forgetfulness in that, what does he do? He continues to intercede on behalf of the people. He continues to say, Lord, Lord, I cry out to you, right? Provide, spare them, help them. And on account of Moses' intercession, the Lord provides. What God does is he shows Moses a log. He said, look at that log. Here's what I want you to do. Throw it in the water. And what happens to the water? It goes from bitterness to now it becomes sweet. And here's a question we should ask when we read this passage. What does this passage actually reveal to us about who God is? It tells us this. God hears the cries of his people. Just as he heard the cries of their people when they were in oppression under the Egyptians, God heard. God hears Moses crying out on behalf of his people. Number two, God is gracious. And number three, God is powerful. God is gracious. Think about this. Why would he provide water for an ungrateful people when they should be nothing but grateful for where they are. God just responded to their cries and rescued them from oppression. Why would, they, why would he respond again to their lack of gratitude for his deliverance of them? Why wouldn't they believe that God would provide when he did all of these miracles and all of his work? Why don't they believe that God is ultimately going to fulfill his promise made through Abraham when God has provided every reason for them to believe that he will do just that. Even then, he doesn't say, oh, you ungrateful people, he provides them water to drink, sweet water to drink. He's gracious. He's also powerful. It's not that he simply has the will to provide for his people, but he also has the power and the ability to provide for his people. God is a God who can turn bitterness into sweetness. God is a God who can turn scarcity into abundance. And therefore, how can we ever say we are lacking when we have a God who hears, when we have a God who is gracious, when we have a God who has the power to provide abundantly in the midst of scarcity? And after God provides, verse 25 says that the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. A couple things I want to point out here. First, notice how God gives uh, the law. This is actually takes place before he gave the law in the Ten Commandments, but Uh, He gives them some statutes and a rule here. Uh, Notice how God gives them this after the provision, right? So it's not kind of like, well, if you do this, then I'll provide for you. No, God provided first, and then he says, now here's what I want you to do, okay? So that order, I think, is important. Obedience is ultimately a response to grace. Obedience is not a way to merit or earn grace. But second here, God tested them. The wilderness is a place of testing. Uh, Some of you are students here. I think when you think about a test, 
It probably conjures up images of school where you take a test and you think about passing or failing. And if you pass the test, it's like, yay, like I can move on to the next level. If you fail a test, oh, I can't advance, right? My oldest daughter is now in a grade where they're starting to give uh, like letter grades, right? A, B, C, D, F. Actually, I don't think there's D. I think it goes A, B, C, F. Anyway, uh, so I go, I go to curriculum night, and her teacher says, uh, I tell the students that tests are a celebration of knowledge, and they are indicators of what you know and what you need to work on. So for the teacher, it's a pedagogical I'll be honest, like as parents, like Jen and I were like, oh, we don't like that, right? We want to. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think the teacher's perspective on why you give a test is actually right, right? A test is meant for uh, pedagogical purposes. It's a teaching device. It's a tool to help people learn. In other words, what she was saying is the purpose of this test is not simply to uh, pass to the next level, but it's to teach you how to be a student, how to study how to take a test, how to answer questions. They're supposed to teach you to be a better learner. Similarly, when it talks about God's test, it's not so much about passing or failing or moving to a, a higher level as if somehow we can become more worthy of God, uh, but it's a teaching tool. It's a pedagogical tool. It's meant to be formative and show the people of Israel, this is what it means to be in covenant with God. This is what it looks like, Right? This is what obedience is. This is what obedience requires. If you read uh, Exodus twenty twenty, Moses tells the people this. He says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And in that verse, it shows us the purpose of the test is ultimately for their benefit. It is through passing and failing these tests where God's people will ultimately learn how to live in obedience so that they can flourish for their own good so they can flourish as the people of God, so they can be the very people that God intended them to be through their obedience. And finally, Act 3, God brings them to this place called Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Uh, in other words, God brings them to like this night, nice uh, resort setting, right? <laughs> With a bunch of water and palm trees. Here's what one commentator says about Elim. It says this, it's a glimpse of what is to come, the lush land of Canaan, the land God promised to the patriarchs in which he has prepared for his people. Elim is the reversal of the desert environment and a foretaste of things to come. You don't have the fulfillment of God's promise here, per se, but here's what you do have. You have a sign pointing to the fulfillment of God's promise to remind them, to encourage them, hey, this taste that you have here in Elim, this taste of sweetness, this water and palm trees and this sense of refuge and safety and all of these things, this sense of, wow, this is a great place. God is ultimately going to provide that home for you, right? Now, I read this story and I see so many connections to the gospel in this story. So just as God saved Israel from bondage in Egypt, God saved us from the bondage of sin. Just as Moses interceded on behalf of an undeserving people, Jesus also intercedes on our behalf. Just as God shows his grace and provides drinkable water, God has shown us his grace, and he provides us with living waters of eternal life from the Gospel of John. Just as God desires obedience for a people who are in covenant with him, so also God desires our obedience because we too are in covenantal relationship with him. Just as God brought them to the place where their thirst was to be quenched, where they received the protective shade of these palm trees, 
God will provide us with this final destination that we will call home in the new heaven and new earth. And just as the Israelites journeyed in the wilderness as sojourners without a home, so too does the church journey in its own way, in its own kind of wilderness as sojourners without a home. So there is some value, I think, in looking at Israel's journey in the wilderness. And in particular for our church, I think the circumstances in which we find ourselves in at this moment, perhaps we can even relate to their experience all the more. When we don't have a sense of home, when things feel unstable, when we feel like we are lacking, who is God in these times? I think the word that has been uh, in my mind for a few weeks is the word stuck. I think I shared this uh, at prayer meeting a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I feel stuck. I feel like we're stuck to a certain degree. Uh, we don't have this stable worship space yet. Um, September was a, you know, kind of a terrible month in terms of like getting here and just being here for worship. Uh, it kind of feels like a lot of things are on hold and we, we can't move forward and uh, it feels like maybe we don't have enough, whether it's like we don't have enough people or we don't have enough resources. And that feeling of feeling stuck is, um, it can be frustrating and it can be discouraging. And I don't think it's wrong to feel frustrated or discouraged, but in the midst of that, we do have to be careful that we don't allow our hearts to grumble or complain against God. Because then we forget blessing. Because then we forget God is still with us. Because we forget God is gracious. He has poured out all he could pour out to us in giving us his son. And when we forget blessing, we believe uh, we're impoverished, we believe we're lacking, we live as needy people, um, and it's the misery, right? Not only that, that's when we become very susceptible to other kinds of sins. As we'll see in future messages, that's when we can turn to idols. That's when we can allow fear to grip us, be our guide, and overtake our hearts. Rather, when things seem grim and we don't have water to drink for three days and we don't know what the next steps are going to be or what will happen, to live by faith. What does that mean? We need to trust that God is good, that God is gracious, God is powerful, that God is a keeper of his promise, that God wants our good, that God wants us to know him more, that God wants us to flourish, which is why the obedience component is so key. We need to know that no matter how much we think we lack, the spiritual reality is there is nothing we lack because we have a God who can turn bitterness into sweetness, who can provide manna from heaven, who could feed a crowd with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. In some ways, perhaps these are the only kinds of lessons or the only kinds of things we can know about God in a powerful way in the context of a wilderness experience, right? Because if everything is just kind of uh, elim, everything is a resort, uh, I don't know, maybe sometimes you miss other aspects of who God is because you're so used to being in that resort, right? So I, I, mm, I set this forth. 
it's a challenging season right now. Maybe for some more than others, but I would say collectively. It's a little bit of a challenging season. And we could say, oh man, this stinks. <laughs> and I've said that. Oh man, this stinks, right? Parade again? Oh, this stinks. <laughs> uh, or we could say, all right, this is where we find ourselves. Who are you, God? Show me who you are in this wilderness experience. Believe it or not, I think that will be so key and so central in building the kind of faith we need uh, to flourish next seasons of the church. Let me pray for us. Uh, we're going to respond in song in a moment, but I do want to give you an opportunity to kind of reflect a little bit. And um, I don't want to presume, but I suspect all of us have complained about something in the past week, and our hearts have grumbled about something in the past week. And I want us to practice reorienting some of those complaints. Um, and ask ourselves, well, what is the blessing side of it? Where has God been gracious to me? What are the areas in which God has helped me? What has God provided to me? Consider these things. And fight grumbling. Build gratitude. Therefore, invite life into our hearts. So, let's spend a few moments personal prayer, and then we'll respond in song.